This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure and honor of speaking with uh, Professor Jonathan Letterman, who is a professor of medical oncology in the University College London Cancer Institute. He's a current chair of the Rare Tumors Group for the GCIG and the vice president of the Euro European Society of Gynecologic Oncology. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. So this is um, obviously a, a very interesting topic that we're going to be discussing today, the uh, management of patients um, with advanced ovarian cancer in the upfront setting at, at the adjuvant treatment and, and focusing uh, primarily on a landmark study that was uh, published in the Lancet Oncology, uh, the ICON-8 trial. So thank you for this opportunity to, to, to speak with you about this. And I wanted to start uh, by first, if you can put in perspective, where we are today with regards to adjuvant therapy in patients with advanced ovarian cancer, and, and what was the rationale for conducting this particular study? Okay, so uh, ICON-8, uh, which is the trial we're going to discuss, which was actually published in The Lancet, um, was a trial uh, that was designed on the back of some very interesting data that appeared um, at around about 2009 from the Japanese group, um, which was a trial that looked at weekly paclitaxel in the first-line treatment of ovarian cancer in, in combination with carboplatin. And you know, for many years, we've been using carboplatin and paclitaxel and really had seen very little improvement in outcome. So when the results of this trial uh, were first presented and then published, showing a, a significant improvement in progression-free survival and indeed improvement in overall survival, uh, we felt this was potentially a practice-changing trial. But having just had one uh, trial, we felt that this needed to be uh, repeated. And indeed, we, we were not the only ones in, in the U.S. This was also considered important and you know, led to the development of a very similar uh, uh, approach using the, the, the GOG-262 trial. So the ICON-8 trial was designed really to see whether weekly paclitaxel led to a significant improvement um, in the outcome of patients, as had been seen in the Japanese study. And Jonathan, why did, did we expect the results in, in Europe would be different from the results in Japan? Well, of course, we were hoping that they wouldn't be different. We were <laughs> hoping that we would be able to show uh, and confirm that um, the weekly paclitaxel led to superior progression-free and overall survival, as the Japanese had shown. I think what we wanted to do, in, in addition to repeating uh, the study, was to include the third arm, which we had in this trial, which was with weekly carboplatin and weekly paclitaxel. And the reason for doing that was that when we look at the Japanese study, mm -hmm. um, there were quite a few patients who were unable to complete uh, the treatment as planned due to toxicity. Um, and we felt that adding in weekly carboplatin at a lower dose with the uh, paclitaxel might make the treatment more tolerable. And we had data, some data, phase two data, admittedly, um, showing that weekly carboplatin and weekly paclitaxel was an active regimen, and well-tolerated regimen. So that's why we, we added this in to um, the, the two main arms, which is really to try and repeat the Japanese work um, of weekly versus three-weekly paclitaxel. Right, and um, and when looking at the, uh, the the patient population that you included, 
um, what was specifically for the Icon 8, your inclusion and exclusion criteria, and uh, did you have the same primary endpoint as the Japanese study? So we, we wanted to make this trial really reflect practice uh, that was going on in, in Europe and in the UK. Um, so we really wanted to take virtually any patient uh, with newly diagnosed ovarian cancer. So that included patients who were undergoing primary debulking surgery as well as those undergoing neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Now, we're using carboplatin and paclitaxel really uh, in, in all stages um, of patients. There's you know, a little bit of debate about it's the combination, the value of the combination in, 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 in stage one or 1A and so forth. So we, we wanted to allow this regimen across all stages, but we wanted to cap uh, the number of patients with early stage disease. So we didn't have more than um, just over 10% of patients with stage uh, one, uh, 1C, 2A uh, ovarian cancer. Most of the patients had advanced ovarian cancer. And again, it was a selection of patients according to the physician's choice, whether they went for primary surgery or um, or interval debulking surgery. So we had um, progression-free and overall survival as the two co-primary endpoints targeting a hazard ratio of 0.75, which meant that we had to have uh, just over 1,550, we actually had 1,566 patients in the trial. And, uh, and uh, Jonathan, uh, when, um, when talking about the number of uh, participants, how many, how long did it take? for you to accrue all of these patients? Well, uh, we started the trial um, in uh, June of 2011, um, and it took 40, 41 months to uh, recruit all the patients. This was a GCIG uh, cooperative trial um, uh, with participation not only from the UK, but Korea, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Mexico, and Ireland. So uh, several several countries involved in the recruitment, which meant that we could take this, get, recruit this number of patients really in a fairly short space of time. And Jonathan, one of the things that, uh, and you mentioned previously, you had about 10% of patients with stage 1C and, and 2A. And of course, obviously, there's always the argument of, well, you know, why include those patients? And do you feel that uh, including this uh, small percentage of patients uh, had any impact on the on the outcomes of the study? No, I mean they were you know they were pretty evenly distributed, of course, in the three th three arms of the study. So uh, there was there was good balance across across all the arms of the study. Um, so you know I don't think that uh, made made any difference um, to the outcome of the the study. Uh, I think, you know, in, in terms of those patients undergoing neoadjuvant chemotherapy and those undergoing um, uh, primary surgery, of course, there are slightly different groups of patients, which would uh, explain why we saw different outcomes in the two groups. Um, but again, the groups were well balanced, and it was really just asking the question, you know, is there a difference when you use weekly paclitaxel or three-weekly paclitaxel? Yeah, and, uh, and as you mentioned uh, about the balancing across the, uh, the groups, uh, before getting into the results, um, just sort of for, for our audience, in, in terms of the baseline characteristics, um, all three groups were, were balanced with regards to the risk factors and, and the history in these patients? Yes, so, so they were well balanced. Um, I mean, 70% of the patients had high-grade serous tumors. Um, age was similar, median around about 63 um, and 20% of patients across the three arms had stage 4 disease. 
um, about 48% of patients um, went underwent primary surgery. Um, and again, that was well balanced across the three arms. So then now, Jonathan, getting on to the, uh, the, the impacting results of the study, uh, did you see uh, what you were expecting? Were you surprised by the results? Um, what was the, 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 the result of the study? So we were disappointed in the sense that we had hoped that we might replicate um, the Japanese data, uh, although I think by the time the ICON-8 trial results came out, we'd already seen the results of GOG-262, and we'd already seen uh, the results of the, the MITO-7 uh, study um, with weekly Paclitaxel, uh, both of those showing that there was no apparent benefit from using weekly Paclitaxel. So we were therefore not all that surprised when uh, the results came out and showed no difference in progression-free survival, no significant difference in progression-free survival between the three-weekly paclitaxel or either of the weekly paclitaxel arms. That's the three-weekly carboplatin and weekly paclitaxel, and the third arm, which was weekly carboplatin and weekly paclitaxel. Uh, so the median progression-free survival across all those patient uh, groups um, was around about 20 months, uh, as I said, not significantly different between any of the three groups. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, obviously, presuming that the median follow-up uh, across the three groups was also very similar, given the, the nature of the study. Yeah, yeah. So this is a median follow-up of 36 months. So you know, these are mature data. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Jonathan, one of the other things also, and, and you had mentioned this uh, previously, um, the issue of the inclusion um, of the neoadjuvant group. Um, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that and what, what information can you gather uh, from this population? Is, is, it, is it different than the um, post-surgery uh, group in terms of outcomes? So, you know, when we look at the three arms of the trial within the neoadjuvant group and within the primary surgery group, we say, see no difference within the three arms of the trial. So there was no sort of effect of weekly paclitaxel in, in either of those two approaches. When we actually look at the actual value of PFS uh, in the two groups, of course, it's very different um, and quite strikingly different. Now, of course, there's, of course, several reasons for that, uh, that one could explain those differences, one of which, of course, is that the um, majority of patients with stage 1A and 2A, uh, 1C and 2A disease, of course, were in the primary surgical group, and therefore, um, you would expect a better progression-free survival. Mm -hmm. And uh, Similarly, if you look at the stage four patients, there were more stage four patients in the neoadjuvant group uh, uh, than there were in the primary surgical group. And of course, we know that you know the presence of stage four disease is an adverse um, prognostic factor. So, you know, this was not a randomization between primary surgery and neoadjuvant therapy. It was a clinical decision. Um, and I think it just underscores that you know, the, 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 the caution that we, we need in interpreting some of the uh, data on neoadjuvant surgery against primary um, surgery because we're dealing often with different groups of patients. And I think you know, if we look across the board in the past trials that have been done, you know, all of which have shown seeming equivalent equivalence between uh, primary surgery and neoadjuvant chemotherapy in randomized trials, when you look at the actual progression-free survival in those studies, they are far lower than they are in those studies, other studies that have been done where the majority, if not all the patients, have had primary surgery. So we have to be careful in making those comparisons, really, to dealing with different, different populations here. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm so glad you actually brought up that point, not only about the study, but also about um, other studies looking at, at that uh, question. Um, and, and you mentioned that the complete set reduction in the, in the Iconine study was achieved in about 56% of patients, I believe. Um, one question is, was that rate of set reduction um, equal uh, in, in all groups? And in, uh, in, in your thoughts with regards to whether this is uh, reflective of, uh, of, the, of the general practice across uh, what's been published in the literature? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, the, the, the rate of cider, complete cider reduction was similar across all three arms. So I don't think there was a confounding effect of the degree of cider reduction in relation to the PFS in this trial, which is, of course, encourage, you know, reassuring. Um, in terms of the rate of cider reduction, you know, I think, again, we're dealing with uh, different countries, different, you know, different approaches to treatment. But I think, actually, um, that is the sort of rate of complete cider reduction we see uh, in a general setting in patients with, you know, advanced ovarian cancer. Right, exactly. Um, and now, you know, obviously you mentioned some of the issues with regards to the um, potential toxicity or the dose um, uh, delays or omissions. Um, wh what was the incidence of those delays and omissions in the three groups of, of the study? Yeah, well, that's, that's of course a critical, a critical question. Uh, you know, when you're looking at these different different schedulings, I think the first thing to say is, you know, I think we all regard the platinum as the most important of the two drugs, uh, and it was reassuring to see that across the piece in the three different arms, we saw very similar delivery of platinum. That is to say, patients achieving six cycles of platinum, which is what was scheduled um, in in the trial in, you know, around about 88 to 90% of, uh, of, of, of the group. Mm -hmm. So there was no compromising of the platinum doses. But when we looked at the um, tax cell doses, we did see some variation there. Um, we saw that the patients on weekly tax cell did tend to have less um, than um, the three weekly paclitaxel in terms of completion rates mm -hmm. of, of chemotherapy. Um, and, of course, one of the reasons could be that those patients are seen weekly and, you know, if they're feeling the toxicity and if they're in the cess of the toxicity weekly, then there may be a reason for, di you know, discontinuing their treatment before they finished. Um, so that was an interesting observation in the study because, you know, we were led to understand or hypothesize that actually weekly paclitaxel was going to be less toxic, more manageable mm -hmm. uh, than three, three weekly paclitaxel, and that, that doesn't seem to be in the case. Okay. In, in relation to the toxicity, I think we also need to be a little bit careful because we did see more neutropenia in the weekly paclitaxel, but, of course, those patients were having blood counts done every week whilst the patients on the three-weekly regimens were, were not. They were seen every three weeks. So the recording of neutropenia was greater in the weekly paclitaxel, but the incidence of neutropenic sepsis was small, and it was equivalent across uh, both, uh, both arms, uh, sorry, all three arms. Um, we saw a little less uh, alopecia or severe alopecia in the weekly paclitaxel, and it may have been partly because it's weekly and partly because some of those patients may have had scalp cooling. Uh, neuropathy, in terms of the incidence of neuropathy, um, was similar. And, of course, that's an important question because one of the 
The issue that was raised is perhaps that the weekly paclitaxel might have less neurotoxicity, but we didn't see uh, a reduction in the incidence. Uh, we haven't yet published in the paper, but it has have presented the longer-term effects of toxicity, which interestingly uh, show that in the weekly arm, um, it seems to persist for longer, which was, again, something surprising, but that will, that will appear uh, in publication uh, soon. Yeah, and that's a very interesting point you raised with regards to uh, the, the frequency of these toxicities, and, and you're absolutely right. When, when the patient's there uh, and you're recording it, of course, then you're, you're already uh, more likely and bound to, to have a higher rate of whatever you're measuring at that, at that point. So that's actually very, very interesting. And, and Jonathan, I, I understand you, you, you also did a, an analysis of uh, quality of life uh, in, in this study. Um, do you have yeah, it has been done. It's, it's it's in press at the moment. Uh, um, it's uh, so we you know we have we have uh, presented it, but the I think the complete uh, data will will come out soon, uh, and it'll probably be better to discuss it uh, at that time because okay. I think in relation to quality of life, we also have of course things like the toxicity, the persistence of neurotoxicity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think all those taken together will give us uh, you know some indication of, of of the differences that exist between the three arms of the trial. Right. And, and I know that obviously this question, this next question um, probably has come up and many, many, many times during your discussions of this uh, particular topic. Um, but I think obviously we all want to know, why, why are the results of ICON-8 uh, different from the Japanese GOG-3016 uh, study? What's, what's different about the Japanese patients? Yeah, so this 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 is uh, is a very strange uh, strange phenomenon, isn't it? I mean, you know, we've now um, we've now had uh, four studies. We've got the Japanese study, and we've got three other studies outside of Japan. And the three other studies, GOG two sixty two, ICON uh, eight, and Mito seven, all show similar results. Uh, that is to say, uh, no difference with weekly versus three weekly. And uh, this is discordant with the the Japanese trial. So you know, I, I really don't know why that is. Um, I think you know many Icon eight in, it, it really matched the Japanese study almost completely. I mean, we used very slightly lower dose of week, three weekly packet packs at 175 milligrams, whereas in Japan they use uh, 180 milligrams. Um, so you know, is there something different about? the way in which the Japanese patients metabolize these drugs, I don't know. There was, when I went back and looked at the Japanese paper, there was something that has not been elucidated in any great detail, um, and that is that patients, some patients went on to have secondary surgery, including second look type surgery, which we don't do now, um, at the end of chemotherapy. Now, we don't know what the numbers are. That's not specified in the paper. But of course, having a debulking surgery at the end of six cycles of chemotherapy could, and most likely would, extend the progression-free survival. So that may have a bearing on the outcome. uh, And I think it would be helpful if we knew what the numbers of patients were. But uh, to my knowledge, that's not been presented or published anywhere. That's very interesting. And and Jonathan, in in your mind, um, has this question been settled? Do we stop looking into weekly regimens in the upfront setting? 
I think so. I mean, I think, you know, there's a hu been a huge effort uh, internationally to look at this question. Uh, and, you know, the, the concordance that we've seen with those three other major studies outside of Japan, I think, really um, should make us conclude that there is no added benefit of using a weekly paclitaxel. Uh, certainly our practice is very rarely to use that. There are occasional situations where patients um, you know, just want to try uh, and avoid alopecia, and there is a better chance of avoiding alopecia with scalp cooling on the, the weekly regimen than the three-weekly regimen, but there are really very few uh, situations in, in our practice anyway uh, where we would uh, use weekly paclitaxel in the frontline setting rather than three-weekly paclitaxel. So, Jonathan, as the last question, of course, obviously, I'm sure our audience would love to hear what does Jonathan Letterman do in his practice with his patients when a patient comes to see you after, um, actually, two scenarios, after upfront optimal set of reduction, upfront suboptimal set of reduction? Uh, what are your recommendations today as this is the treatment that you must undergo? Well, I think the, the one thing that has really changed our practice and way of thinking uh, in these patients is the presence of BRCA mutations, um, uh, particularly what, what, we, what we've seen with the results of uh, PARP inhibitors in the SOLA-1 trial, um, the huge difference that's uh, appeared in the progression-free survival. So I think it's now become absolutely essential that we analyze not only for germline, but also for presence of uh, somatic BRCA mutations so that we can decide whether or not the patient should have um, maintenance elaborid after they've completed chemotherapy. So I think for our patients, all our patients, that's done uh, very early on uh, when we see the patient, so it helps us make the decision. Uh, in relation to bevacizumab, which is, of course, the other component that we have to consider in the first-line setting, I think there is still quite a lot of discussion globally about the importance of first-line bevacizumab as, as opposed to using the drug later on. Our practice generally uh, in the UK has been to use it in situations where patients have bulky residual disease, so suboptimal uh, cytoreduction, uh, or in the stage four patients. So we have a greater tendency to use bevacizumab in those patients than we do in patients with uh, optimal cytoreduction. Um, but at the situation at the moment is that if the patient had a BRCA mutation, then that would take uh, priority in terms of the decision-making. We're not at the moment combining um, Alaparib uh, with bevacizumab, although you know, we've seen the results of the Paolo 1 study, but we have to wait until that settles down and the regulators uh, you know, take hold of the data and make decisions about how to, to bring those two drugs in together. Um, just the, the, the final thing on, on those decision-makings, of course, is that uh, quite a large percentage of patients in the UK um, have uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I mean, in our own center, it's just around about 40%. Uh, we, we have a lot of very good, uh, you know, surgical uh, facilities, so it's a relatively low percentage. In some parts of the country, it's upwards of 80%. So those patients uh, who go for neoadjuvant chemotherapy would generally start off with, with combination chemotherapy, and the decisions in the main about adding in bevacizumab or not would be made after the interval debulking surgery, again, depending on whether uh, the patients had optimal or suboptimal cytoreduction. 
So thank you so much, Jonathan. That actually was a, a, a really great opportunity and obviously always learned a tremendous amount of speaking with you. I want to thank you. I want to congratulate you uh, for your publication in The Lancet of the Icon 8 uh, trial. And, uh, and again, obviously also congratulate you for all the contributions you uh, have made and continue to make to the field of gynecologic oncology. Thank you. Thank you, Pedro. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much.